Welcome to the 295th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Emma Green, staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine and author of the recent article, The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. At this time, we're scheduling COVID calls into the fall, so please do send your suggestions. Thanks. As of today, June 22nd, 2021, there are 3,874,630 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, 602,107 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. India reports 389,302 deaths from COVID-19. And Colombia reports 100,582 deaths. I'd like to jump right into the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest to you. I've really been looking forward to speaking with her. Emma Green is a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine where she covers politics, policy, and religion. In 2019, she won three first place awards from the Religion News Association and she was recently named the laureate of the 2020 George W. Hunt SJ Prize for Excellence in Journalism, Arts, and Letters. Emma has spoken at universities across the United States, and her work has appeared in outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and NPR. She lives in New York City. Emma Green, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. It's such a pleasure to be joining you. Thank you. So I like to start out the way I usually do, find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic situation looks like there, maybe what the vaccination situation looks like there. So I'm normally based in New York City, but I'm actually visiting family in Tennessee. And one thing that was interesting for us before we traveled, my family traveled down here together, first was the experience of really traveling for the first time since the pandemic began. But second, becoming adjusted to the fact that in New York City, in the neighborhood where we live, there are very high vaccination rates, a very high compliance rate with mask wearing, a lot of still awareness around the pandemic and precautions. And the environment here is very different, both in terms of rates of vaccination. Tennessee has, I think, one of the lowest vaccination rates still of the entire United States. And, you know, the cultural difference of people having lived through the pandemic differently, approached it with a different set of assumptions. And so for me, it's been a kind of mindset adjustment around coming to a different place and knowing that it's a kind of a different stage of the pandemic here, even than in New York City. You know, it's so interesting and and I'm glad you were able to to travel. Uh, That must have been, I I found my own experience, I haven't 
just traveling internationally back in February, it was like, I was looking forward to this. But then I really was looking forward to, you know, in some weird way, like going back to the security line was somehow something I had, maybe I hadn't missed that part, but I'd missed a lot of it. <laughs> there are certain pleasures of doing mundane things again for the first time after having not done them for a really long time. And for me, that was really getting back on the subway and realizing, you know, the subway, everybody loves to complain about riding the subway in New York City. But when you miss the subway, man, you know, you've been through something really serious. And it was really a pleasure to be around people and get to observe all of the old rituals and customs of that kind of travel. It, that experience you described, too, of not being able to assume people have had the same cultural sort of, you know, reaction to their, this is the same cultural experience of the pandemic as you arrive in Tennessee. I wonder how that manifests itself. Does that I mean small talk is different? I guess it's at this point we're still not out making a lot of small talk. But I've, I've been thinking about that, too. Like you shouldn't just assume even like the way people would talk about um, September 11, perhaps, or even Hurricane Katrina. We shouldn't assume necessarily there'll be a common reference point, I guess. I haven't engaged that yet. Yeah, I think that's definitely right. Coming to conversations without a built-in assumption that the last 15 to 16 months has been one of profound isolation, not seeing family, giving up certain social rituals. You know, I think a lot of people did live that way in the United States and a lot of people did not live that way. And so this idea that the entire country is collectively going through a reopening, I think is actually wrong because there, there are many different subsets of the population that have experienced this really differently. But for us, it's also that question of having to reopen conversations about comfort levels that we feel good about in New York City. So, you know, my husband and I, thank goodness, are both vaccinated and we've been able to slowly start doing things that we feel comfortable doing in New York City because we feel, you know, around other vaccinated people in certain safe contexts that we're able to. Um, but again, the risk calculus kind of changes depending on the environment that you're in. So it's just having to kind of revisit a set of rules that we've had to continuously revise throughout the pandemic. And that's been an interesting and, and strange experience. It's a, a good segue to discussing one of your articles that you published recently. And I guess it came out in, in May. And the article that appeared in The Atlantic was titled, is titled, The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. And it's a great piece. If you haven't read it yet, you should go check it out. And it really got me thinking, and this is a topic I think about and talk about every day. And I still learned a lot of new things from this article. So I want to thank you for the article. And, and I guess I wonder if you could just start by talking about how it came about. So this is an example of the kind of story my editor refers to as the water cooler story. He says you should always report the thing that people are gossiping about at the water cooler, not the thing you see on Twitter. You know, the thing that is kind of the secret inside interest that people are sort of chatting about and it, and it feels like, ooh, I'm interested in that. And this was definitely an example of that, both in our office setting, but also among friends in my neighborhood, people in my various communities, kind of talking about what they observed as a political valence to the way that some people in particularly progressive enclaves were talking about and thinking about their own behavior during the pandemic. And the time that I was thinking about this in particular 
was this in-between phase where vaccination had rolled out. It had started to really open up in most places, becoming basically fully universally available to most adults. And, you know, there was a sense that we were headed for a transition period, a sort of paradigm shift in how people thought about what safe behavior looked like. And I was I was just really interested in this question. Is there something about the political milieu in really progressive places, just as we know is true of really conservative places, that has conditioned how people think about what is and is not okay as a personal behavioral risk, but also as a communal risk, the types of structures and rules that we set up as little communities and big communities. Um, so that was really the, the mission of the article, the thing that I set out to understand a little bit better. So just to go a little bit further with that, you discovered that there were um, quite a few differences and some conflicts, even among people who would sort of still say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a progressive. But then when it came down to some of these issues about how much caution and how long, you did find important differences there. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what were some of the tensions or fault lines that were discovered. Well, one of the major tensions that piqued my curiosity was the way that people invoked science as an authority and specifically scientific agencies like the CDC and how they were going to follow those guidelines or how they weren't. Um, you know, I, I mentioned in the piece, and this is a pretty ubiquitous symbol in America, in progressive enclaves, you see these yard signs or sometimes on people's windows, you know, the multicolor rainbow sign that says in this house, we believe Black Lives Matter and, you know, immigrants are people, whatever it might be, and science is real. And, you know, that's a really interesting cultural artifact. This idea that science is real is a statement of belief for progressives. And, and certainly, I, I think that's culturally very much part of the conversation in hyper-progressive areas and very educated progressive areas, which were the ones that I, I was looking at. And something that I noticed was that as I was interviewing people about their experiences or what they'd observed, often there was, A, an expressed mistrust in scientific institutions and authorities. So this idea that the CDC had in some way been compromised, so its guidance couldn't really be trusted. And B, this idea that going beyond where the current guidelines for safety were, for, for example, vaccinated adults, was in some way an expression of good citizenship or caution or, you know, sort of um, wisdom almost that to me was in tension with this notion that, you know, if I'm a good progressive, I follow the science. I go where the studies say. And if the studies say that outdoor transmission is really low as a way that people contract COVID, you know, I'm going to follow what that says and maybe adapt my behavior outside. But, you know, that unwillingness to quote unquote follow the science, I thought was really interesting. And I heard that a lot from especially a couple of physicians who I talked to who had been an epidemiologist who had been sort of deep in this and had found themselves kind of on the, the bad side of ire from progressives. You know, for example, Monica Gandhi in San Francisco is a doctor there who worked on the HIV AIDS epidemic and considers herself super left, like made it very mm -hmm. clear to me that she's a Bernie Sanders kind of gal. And she really expressed feeling hatred from progressives when she had stated that, you know, some of these behaviors she was observing in her community were actually kind of anti-science. It's interesting. So that the 
the point there was that she was calling for a return to schools or just a more robust discussion around getting students back in school more quickly. I think I remember that from the from the piece. So that somehow that school issue was a real kind of third rail here. Yep. And the other thing that she talked about was masking, um, outdoor mm. masks and trying to relax the way that we thought about outdoor masks and also setting clear guidance and timelines for when it would be safe for vaccinated adults to remove masks in certain contexts. Um, she was really emphatic that she thinks that total abstinence is not a great behavioral paradigm for dealing with a long-term pandemic like COVID. You know, COVID's gonna be with us for a really long time. Um, and so she has really advocated trying to offer mitigations rather than abstinence as a, as a paradigm. So does that mean then that you see some kind of party realignment going on here around? I mean, that's sort of been the case for a while, unfortunately, that we sort of maybe assume Democrats or the party are going to support science and Republicans aren't. It's always much more complicated than that. And then you find these kind of perspectives, kind of a spectrum within people who align as Democrats. Are we in the middle of some sort of new COVID science realignment that you could actually map onto an uh, electoral system, do you think? <laughs> it's a great question. And I think something that political science researchers should continue to chase down. I talked with a political scientist um, who works at UNC, Mark Hetherington, who works on this question of political alignment around certain issues and attitudes. And definitely he found that this was kind of a pattern, that there was um, a sort of distance of perceptions of reality for very progressive people and the kinds of risks that COVID posed to them, particularly if they were vaccinated or had certain risk profiles. Um, so I, I think there's a seed there. I think we are a long way from really understanding in a full academic sense what this relationship is. But I guess the thing that really caught my eye was that there have been a lot of stories, important stories, about the way that um, some conservative subcultures in the United States have really actively denied the scientific knowledge, research, understanding that has guided us through COVID, either by rejecting masks, denying the power or usefulness of the vaccine, certainly actively promoting conspiracy theories. You know, this is a really heavily covered topic. And to me, I think it's important to kind of disrupt this notion that, you know, there's one side and the other side, and one side's perfectly following the science and the other is, you know, perfectly rejecting the science. Because I think it's it's really complicated, right? Science is not this um, sort of thing that looms above us as a god that you can either be in perfect alignment with or not. It's cultural and it's a give and take and it's complicated and it's complicated for lay people to interpret. And I think different political subcultures interact with that complicated cloud in different ways. And this is an example, I think, where certain progressive subcultures have kind of said, you know, we're not going to follow what we see as the scientific guidance or authority. I've been thinking a lot about this ever since I read the article. And, and, and it is, to me, kind of really interesting, this point you make about a sense that many people have, whether they align as Republicans or Democrats, that somehow science bureaucracy has been corrupted. First of all, that it's corruptible. You got to get to that point. And then and it's been corrupted. And so then trust has to find somewhere else to go. 
And I've been wondering, like, even if we put that on a timeline, you know, and I speak for myself, I would say that by the summer of last year, it was, you know, I will, I'll never know, but if, if the vaccine had been available before the election, what would I have done as a person who has enormous faith in work of science and studies the history of science and, and knows that it's not the God that comes down, but still, how much had my faith in the CDC been shaken by the summer of last year that I might have been in that category that you're describing as a person who said, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm also doubting here. Whereas my, let's say, you know, friends who are Republicans, they came into February feeling the system was corrupted. They walk around feeling like the scientific system is corrupt. They think scientists get, you know, paid enormous sacks of money to lie about climate change and, and things like that. So, but that corruption is an interesting way to into the topic because everybody has a, a point at which they're willing to say, yeah, I can't, I can't go with that anymore. Yeah, I think this question is so big and thorny. And look, there has been a lot of reporting. There was an award-winning piece by ProPublica that really broke down the way in which the CDC was politically co-opted by the Trump administration and sort of redirected. And, you know, the messaging was massaged in order to meet certain political ends. So it's not like people are fabricating this notion that our institutions of scientific authority are run by human beings who are subject to political considerations. That was true before COVID, but certainly I think that's been evident to a lot of people as they have found their lives dominated by the CDC or it's been more important to them on a day-to-day -day way what the CDC has to say. So, you know, that's one piece of it that I think is really complicated, but the part of this story and my desire to understand this better is this notion that we as different parts of the country as a whole, as subcultures have come to these collective agreements about not only what we're gonna do, like a contract of behavior, but also what that means. Why are we giving up these things that really matter to us? Why are we rescheduling weddings, skipping funerals, not going to see a new baby who comes home from the hospital, you know, not having friends over for dinner, why are we doing these things? And the kind of meaning making that comes out of that, I mm. think is very much tied to, as you were saying, our sense of trust and confidence that what we're doing has a purpose to it, right? There's a sort of bedrock there. And when you remove that solid bedrock of, okay, I'm just doing what the CDC says, and there's sort of other stuff being subbed in there, you know, that, that's what I was curious about. What, what is that bedrock of meaning making and sureness and confidence about how you're, you're making these choices that you, people in progressive communities, are, are basing your, your life choices on? So do you think then this sort of hypervigilant, um, you know, people who tend to, at least in, in the article, you're tracking them as progressive, um, is that now become a standard feature? of our culture, do you think? And I say that as I, I think I'm one of these people to a certain extent that there's sort of a COVID caution group, which is just going to be lagging behind others. I'm not going to be rushing to go back into those settings for a variety of complicated reasons that even I'm not sure I can fully articulate every one of them, but some of it just feels like I need to go slower on this. Maybe I worry about the science. Maybe I worry not everybody's as vaccinated as they say they are, there could be a number of different factors that I'm a little worried that the commons have broken down a bit. So 
what's out there for us? Are, are politicians going to listen to us? Are, are, are we a sort of a, a new, I don't want to say marginalized group because that's not the right way to say it, but maybe that we're a group on the fringe. You know, I don't, I don't even know if I would describe it that way. I think it's more that this set of tools for understanding a certain mentality around COVID that we've been talking about, I think is, is useful for understanding. And basically, as a reporter, you know, that's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in saying, you know, you're dumb and your choices are dumb or you're the best, you're a great citizen. It's more, how do we understand why it is that that mindset exists and still persists? And I do think that there's one level of it, as you said, which is people's personal choices have varied, will continue to vary around what they feel safe doing for themselves or their family based on their circumstances, their comfort level, their suspicions about their neighbors. But then the bigger and thornier question is how we navigate these next stages of COVID as a collective. Um, I think schools, and this comes up in my article, schools are a big example of this because that's a, a great example of an area where there are public decisions that have an impact on a broad group of people that are not just about you know, taking tests, but about providing critical public services like food to kids and being able to monitor kids who might come from abusive households. Um, you know, I talked to parents in Massachusetts in Somerville who work as doctors, a, literally a, a PhD child psychiatrist who works at Mass General, who was talking about this feeling, like this really devastated feeling that kids who have IEPs, these individual assessment plans that require the state to provide certain services to them because of their disabilities, the state is just not providing those services or was not until very, very late in the spring and what the, the consequences would be for those kids. Um, you know, the fact that in some places, especially really progressive, certain progressive enclaves, the school question is still unresolved and some of those trade-offs still haven't been accounted for. You know, I think that's a big test of, you know, where is the caution good? Where does it have costs? Are the costs too great? Are there compromises? Um, are there political forces that um, maybe have more weight in certain districts and less weight in others? You know, teachers unions have played a big, big role in how this has played out in certain places. Um, so, you know, again, for me as a reporter, it's not my job to come in and say, you must reopen fully without any precautions, or you must do all virtual learning for the fall of 2021. It's more trying to understand how is the political environment, all of the different forces within these different communities coming together, and, and what are the costs of the different um, sort of ways that people have the, the cautions that they're bringing to the table um, in terms of who's actually being served and who's not. You know, as, as we think back to how that's going to look politically, maybe in the in the midterms and certainly going into the next general election, again, it, I'm impressed with this idea that if we're going to follow maybe the Senate or high profile, you know, House races, but certainly at the Senate level, that you know, kind of rhetoric around, you know, I'm starting to see <clears throat> from the right that somehow it's going to be an election about Tony Fauci, um, things like that. Like, you know, maybe so, maybe a senator has the ability to sort of operate at that level of, you know, um, abstraction. But where the interesting discussions are going to be are at the school board meetings and at the extremely local level 
where you're going to have this unexpected jumbling of party affiliation, this example you were just talking about, when it comes, should we reopen the school or not? And people go, well, I'm a Republican. Well, all right. Are we going to reopen the school or not? I mean, I think that's the level at which, and still some of these COVID concerns around vaccination, around vaccination passport issues, around workplace requirements, around still around schools, those are not going to be resolved by the midterms. Oh, surely not. And that kind of scrambling of identity is something I'm really interested in. I was interested for this piece, but I think it's going to be an ongoing question. Um, you know, again, returning to Somerville, I talked to a group of moms who were basically, if you could just snap your fingers and assemble a dream team of random people in your community to have available as experts during a global pandemic, this would be your dream team. It was like, you know, a woman who works on water sanitation systems in areas of mass disease outbreak, and then, you know, a PhD child psychiatrist, and then, you know, a doctor who works on infectious disease and, and virology. It was just, you know, it's sort of spookily appropriate. And one of the things that this group of mostly moms told me was that, you know, they sort of, they were pretty politically naive. They sort of got into this issue of advocating on schools because like everybody else, you know, they were trying to figure out what to do with their families and just wanted to understand more about what the district was doing. And they had this kind of disorientation of feeling like they're super progressive. They love the Green New Deal. They love Black Lives Matter. Like they, you know, talked about themselves as basically being, you know, aligned with the Democratic Socialists of America, right? And feeling like suddenly they were on the other side of the table and being demonized by people who otherwise would have been their political allies. That kind of realignment and sense of disorientation, I think is really interesting because it suggests that our way of talking about politics in America, left, right, you know, progressive, conservative, is way too simplistic because there are lots of different ways that people fit into that. And it's a mosaic on, on both sides. And sometimes issues like this can create these interesting and unexpected realignments. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Atlantic Magazine staff writer Emma Green today. We've been talking about her article, The Liberals Who Can't Quit Lockdown. And I want to go a little further with this, but maybe from the other, we've just said there's not one side and the other, but let's talk about the other side. Let's talk about Republicans for a second. I loved your um, sort of a part profile, part Q&A with former Texas Republican Representative Will Hurd, because it raised a lot of these same issues for me, but coming from, um, you know, another part of the political spectrum. And Will Hurd has been in a, an uncomfortable place as a Republican. And I was really curious to see how he was going to talk about getting back to something that looked like kind of divided government that works. And I really been thinking about like, once you've staked out a position that Tony Fauci is public enemy number one, like, what's the... What's the ramp back on to some sort of mainstream politics? It feels like he's grappling with those kind of concerns. 
Talk a little bit about your discussion with Will Hurd and, and maybe how that connects back to some of these areas around COVID where we're trying to find ways to become a, a country that can govern again. Yeah. So just to give 10 seconds of background on Will Hurd in case it's helpful for some of the listeners, you know, this was a guy who represented in Congress a long section of the border of Texas along the Rio Grande. He was actually, I believe, the only Republican who represented a border district. At the time that he retired, right before this last session of Congress, so right at the end of 2020, he was the only Black Republican in the House. And he kind of staked out this seat for himself as being, you know, a Republican who thought about the facts, was willing to work with the other side, you know, was for the reasonable Republican Party who wanted to bring people in with a vision of America, really, you know, working the center. And obviously, I don't know his soul and his like real heart of heart reasons for stepping away from Congress and what his political future holds. But it really struck me talking to him that his is not the ascendant voice in the National Republican Party. And I think during COVID, we've seen this play out innumerable times where, you know, at least some parts of the National Republican Party have chose to make the discussions less about a kind of collaborative effort that involves everybody. It's everybody's problem that we have this giant pandemic that is making a lot of people sick in America and around the world. But instead of having that kind of problem solving mentality, there were some subsets of the National Party who really did make it about, you know, these evil characters like, you know, Dr. Fauci, who did make it about, you know, freedom and liberty, and you're taking away my freedoms and liberties, and, you know, you're just a mindless masker, whatever it is. That segment that's more focused on trolling the libs and trying to get a reaction and trying to point to how Democrats are so bad and to create this kind of anger, I do think that that is the ascendant or more powerful wing of the National Republican Party, even if that's not everybody who is part of the National Republican Party. And so for somebody like Will Hurd, I think the question is, you know, what are you going to do? Like, could you get elected to Congress tomorrow? Would you be able to get elected to statewide office from Texas? Are you going to throw your weight around within the National Republican Party? Are you going to work on taking down some of those trollier figures who are now serving the House? Um, I, I think it's a really big and thorny question about the future of the Republican Party. So where did you come away from in this discussion? Did he sound like somebody who could challenge a, a Ted Cruz on a kind of a, <laughs> won't go so far as to say a unity ticket, but as saying like, hey, that's just, it's too far. We, we can't govern if we're going to continue to, you know, be the party of Trump. <laughs> I did try to needle him about um, a Senate run. And uh, of course, like a good politician, he sidestepped that question about trying to primary somebody in his own party. Yeah, I saw um, that, but I, I appreciated the effort on your part. <laughs> yeah. That's my question too. I, I, I have been looking for people, I'm from Texas originally, I'm looking for people like Will Hurd uh, to challenge some of these um, you know, Republicans who seem to become somehow bulletproof, no matter what kind of madness they spout. Yeah, maybe. I mean... The thing that really struck me in our conversation was that he called back to this document that's become infamous, which was put together by the National GOP after Mitt Romney lost in 2012 against Barack Obama, that basically laid out a roadmap for the future of the Republican Party that was more inclusive, that was focused on racial minorities, that was less focused on kind of inflammatory culture war issues, and that tried to 
focus on big picture unity messages that could bring in a lot more people and to make the Republican base more than the kind of aging white ultra conservative population. And, you know, at the time this was like, okay, this is what Republicans are going to do. And Trump totally threw that out the window. And a lot of the ascendant figures in the Republican party have kind of thrown that out the window as a playbook. So the fact that Will Hurd was still calling back to that as his playbook I found to be notable and, you know, I can't see the future and I am not a clear eyed soothsayer about the Republican party and what works, but it's certainly interesting that he's holding on to a document that many people have said is dead, uh, especially after the Trump years and all the turmoil that we've been through COVID and, and the past four years of, of politics. That really is interesting and makes me, you know, sort of the Paul Ryan, maybe there's some kind of still juice in that part of the party that they're out there just waiting it out, particularly through COVID. I mean, I think if you were a canny politician, you say, you know what, I'm going to let that era move right through and I'll come back after that's over because it would be hard to know, um, you know, where to plant the flag on issues around, you know, these kind of public health things reacting to the to the pandemic. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID calls and talking with Emma Green. So you're usual beat i take it before COVID is is around religion or at least a big a big part of it and um people should check out your reporting if they haven't seen it about you know changes in uh, evangelical christianity one of the pieces of yours that i thought it just really um opened up a world to me that i was not aware of um through the pandemic is titled hasidic devout and mad as hell about COVID 19. And it's the story of uh, basically uh, an editor of a small independent Yiddish language magazine called Der Vecker and the struggles that he's gone through throughout the pandemic. It's it's a complicated, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a complicated in all the right ways kind of story. I wonder if you could kind of bring us into that world a little bit. Yeah. So the Jewish population in New York City, the Hasidic Jewish population, um, Orthodox Jews were really hit very, very hard, um, especially quite early on. And, you know, the reasons for that are really complicated. One of the things that I was really interested in, I started emailing with this person, Ruben, who is the editor of this journal, Der Becker, um, a, a while before I wrote that story. Um, and one of the things that really interested me about his perspective was that um, although there had been a lot of external criticism of the community, you know, sort of blaming those populations and their own behavior for the high proportions of death in those communities, he is someone who is an invested stakeholder and insider. He is not someone who wants to leave. Um, he cares very much about his community. And he had put together this big issue of Dear Becker, which basically was an inside investigation from people who are attending worship services at those synagogues and going to parties for holidays at the homes of people who live in those neighborhoods around the kind of attitudes and lack of willingness to change that he said had kind of pervaded the community, especially after the first few weeks of the pandemic in New York City. Um, and the thing that attracted me to that story is the thing that I'm often drawn to in stories, which is, I think it's one thing to be an outsider shouting criticism to another group, but 
I think divisions that are within communities are often much more revealing about who they are. Because when people have a stake in the future and vitality of a community like that, often they're, they're working from a place of good faith and often a place of deeper mourning, right? So this person, Reuven, um, was really in what I would call deep mourning around what he saw as, you know, basic behaviors that he wished would have changed, like wearing masks inside of synagogues or having better hand-washing procedures, putting soap by the sinks so that people would use soap on their hands to wash their hands. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is revealing that he wasn't willing to share very much about his identity publicly because he recognized that there's a really high stake to speaking out. Um, and that's part of why these stories in some of these really um, rich and pretty uh, isolated communities are often not told um, in these sort of richer ways that show the dynamics, the internal dynamics of internal tension. But, um, you know, I think he thought it was important to articulate it because he wants his friends and family to live. And he felt really, I think, morally betrayed by his sense that his community, which is normally so caring, um, was unable to and unwilling to adjust its behavior by and large during this big public health event. It's so layered because there's the infection rate and the death rate. And I wonder if if that checks out. I mean, it, he was writing that he thought the death rate was three to four times higher than other uh, communities in that part of New York City. So there's, so there's that. There's sort of the public health reality of it. But then there's also this longer lasting sense of, of hurt and betrayal in the community. And he seems to be trying to, he's trying to figure out, I mean, it's horrible that people die, but this other kind of loss is, is no less weighty. And I was really moved by that. Yeah, what, what drew me to this story in particular is that on the one hand, it's hyper-specific. It's specific to New York City. It's specific to the Jewish community there. It's specific to the way of life that Orthodox Jews sustain and its importance. Um, but it also struck me as a story that someone living in small town South Dakota could relate to. Somebody who lived in a really conservative pocket of Arizona could relate to. You know, people who live in parts of the country where their communities for various reasons were unwilling to adjust their behavior and to make collective sacrifices in order to keep everybody safe. Um, we've seen reporting around, around this from around the country. And I, I think that sense of a broken contract, right? A broken sense of trust that your neighbor cares more about protecting your health or your grandma's health than they do about you know, something like wearing a mask or not wearing a mask in an indoor setting, I think that's really fundamental. I think it's really hard to come back from. Um, he said to me at one point that talking to some people in his community who believed in conspiracy theories around COVID and around the vaccine was like, you know, people just telling me with all confidence that the sky was pink. And, you know, what do you say to that? You you just can't. There's no. There's no way to even connect. Um, so, so that sense of of alienation, I think, is is pretty universal, um, and it it really was striking to me as well. 
what's the road back to reconciliation from Ruben's perspective? Is this something you just waited out? Or, I mean, he doesn't seem from, from your reporting, doesn't seem like the kind of person who's willing just to sit on the sidelines. He's calling this out. So, but I kept at the end of the piece, I'm wondering like, what's the way back to a more whole community? And I think I agree with you. I think that applies to communities across America that have been kind of torn apart around these very personal issues. Like, you didn't care to wear a mask, even though you knew that might make it more likely that you would die and that I would die. How do you then rebuild trust? You know, that's a question for someone who should get elected president of the United States or be, you know, have some job that's way higher paid than mine, because I don't know. I, I think COVID has been so revealing not just on a public health level, but on a community level around values and how people conceptualize their values. This is true of the liberals and lockdowns. This is true of Reuven and his Yiddish publication. You know, this, this big crisis that we've all been through is a kind of forging moment. And once we know things or we believe we know things about our neighbors and how they view these really intimate questions around sacrifice and the public good, I don't know that you can unknow them. I don't know how you rebuild trust. And I, I think that that is a kind of secondary aspect of COVID that we are going to be living with for a really long time. I agree with you. And, and you've covered this also from the perspective of evangelical Christianity and some of the, it's, I mean, it's always political in the Southern Baptist Convention, certainly. Um, you know, in any group, any ideological group that makes up, you know, 20 to 25% of Americans have to be paying attention to, you know, not just their spiritual beliefs, but also their political beliefs. These churches, I mean, you've written about sort of the struggle to depoliticize churches or to, to pull back a little bit churches that seem to have gone all in with Trump. How's that going? <laughs> How is that going? Well, we recently had um, big news from the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, messengers from churches around the country got together in Nashville and voted on their next president, which was kind of a symbolic vote about the direction of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they ended up choosing someone who was relatively unknown from Alabama, was kind of framed as a bridge builder. He had worked on issues of racial reconciliation, and he was chosen over a candidate who really centered opposition to critical race theory, um, who believed that the Southern Baptist Convention had sort of liberally drifted. Um, and that, you know, opposing wokeness was a really important uh, imperative for the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I bring up that vote because, um, you know, for me, all of those events underscored something that I have thought for a really long time covering evangelical Christianity, both before Trump, but especially during it, which is, you know, from the outside, a lot of people kind of assume the story is really simple, which is like, you know, evangelicals are a simple block of people and they believe the same stuff and they are Republicans and that is the story. And to my point of view, you know, that's kind of true, but actually the real story is a fracture. And I think within that world, you see a microcosm of what's happening elsewhere in America, which is this kind of sense that there are these existential struggles over who is our community, what do we believe, who do we want to believe, and can we be in community together? 
right? Do we want to be part of this same community of concern, knowing what we now know about each other? And I think those divisions are just going to keep becoming more and more stark and revealing themselves. And it's part of this bigger question around sort of public trust and community and communal fracture that COVID has underscored. That's amazing. I mean, I don't want to get too sociological. Well, actually, I do. I mean, in the, in the sense that what you're describing through these really sort of finely crafted pieces that are paying attention to, you say, micro communities, microcosms of this experience, we're seeing a lot of the same dynamics, which is that the, the structures of group cohesion that pull, keep people together, and they could be about party identification or about religious identification, um, or where they live, what neighborhood they live in, that COVID has, has put a lot of stress on that cohesion. And we're seeing people who kind of become dissident and said, I can't go with the group on this. And I, I wonder now as we go, and I guess this is kind of the last point we need to wrap up, but um, that's, you're going to be continuing to cover that in your reporting. I mean, we're going to need a lot of reporting to follow this as it goes into the next phase. I'm not going to say post-COVID or aftermath. I don't think we're there yet. But the cultural reckoning is going to be long and painful, I think. I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, one of, one of these questions that I talk about with my editor as a big framing device for my stories and what stories I'm choosing is, can we live together? And I think there are lots of background factors around that question. Politics is certainly one of them, you know, the national political discourse. But I agree with you that COVID has been revealing and also hugely stressing of these kinds of ties that bind. And can we live together is going to be just a huge question that sticks with us for a long time in these micro ways and these macro ways. So yes, I will keep writing uh, and keep reporting. And if you've got good stories for me, send them my way. Just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And be sure to join us uh, tomorrow for the next COVID Calls at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I actually have a special COVID Calls uh, makeup from a previous episode that was canceled two weeks ago. So we have a special time uh, for the next COVID Calls episode and watch Twitter for announcements of that. We'll be talking more about the pandemic in India I want to thank my guest, Emma Green, uh, first of all, for the great reporting and for then taking the time to go through some of the details of that reporting. Um, thanks for what you're doing and, and keep after it. Thanks so much. It was really, really wonderful to talk with you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time.